Yeah, it's really funny when it's not our conflict. Uh, when it's somebody else's, it's a little bit more entertaining and enjoyable. And thanks for having me here today. My name is Josh Jones. I'm married to Kristen, been married for 18 years. She's here with me. We have four kids, a son and three daughters, and they're serving at Montrose campus this morning. So they're hard at work there, but it's my privilege to be here with you today. I do have the privilege of serving Bridgewater uh, as the student ministries director. I also help out at Montrose and uh, we all just kind of wear whatever hat is uh, given to us, and we have a great time doing it. I want to say thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for giving so generously. We love the stories that come out of every campus. We love hearing stories come out of Conklin about how God is changing lives. So thank you for your service. Thank you for your talents and your energy and your resources that you are giving to help move the mission forward and making more and better disciples. It's a privilege to partner with you in that. We love doing that together. Uh, we're in this series called Rules of Engagement, and we would have to admit that the happiest and most wonderful moments of our lives come through us in the context of relationships, and the hardest, most difficult, most miserable, agonizing experiences of our lives also come through, to us through relationships. And so that's why we're talking about it. It's not always difficult to begin a relationship. It is really, really difficult to continue one. And... Um, we're, we're just sort of living that experience here as maybe names and faces pop into your mind of people who you had a relationship with once and don't anymore, and it's their fault, or it's your fault, or it's both of your fault. Uh, it's, that's just kind of how it goes. And so I want to review a little bit. Rule number one, week one, we said it's not about winning. Our goal is not to win. My goal is not to come out and be on top like we just saw in the video my goal is to honor God. And as Kristen and I work with people, talk to people, counsel people, we would tell them, and we even tell our kids, if just one of you, if just one of you would decide that your goal is going to be to honor God, this thing will improve. It's true in marriage. If one of the two spouses will just decide they're going to honor God, the conflict will get better to some degree. Number two, rule number two, we said own your part. Own your part. And, and we tackled Romans 12, 18, which to me is one of the most, it's a pressure release valve in God's word because it starts by saying this, if possible, if possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace with all people. I think growing up, I sort of took the Bible as very rules heavy and I just needed to toe the line. And God expected me to do it no matter what. And it was just kind of like a tight box I needed to fit myself into. But I think Romans 12, 18 reveals to us that God understands the human condition. He says, if possible, meaning it might not be possible to live at peace with all people. And then he says, as much as depends on you. So own your part. If you own 10%, own all 10. If you own 95%, you better own all 95. Week number three, last week we said apologize apologize. We, we actually pointed out the difference between an apology and asking for forgiveness. It's baffling to me how often I experience or observe an apology where forgiveness, the transaction of forgiveness, doesn't actually take place because it was never requested or it was never granted. We talked about the fact that if I bump into you in the hallway, I'm going to say, oh, I'm sorry. That's an apology. But if I've sinned against you, there's a debt now that I owe you that you can cancel, and I can ask you to cancel it by saying, will you forgive me? And then you do. And then we're good. It doesn't absolve us of consequences, but it is very, very important. And we're going to get to rule number four here soon. 
Uh, I am 39 years old. We'll be, we'll be 40 this year. In fact, I was just playing. Uh, I was out in the baseball field. I coached baseball at Montrose High School, and I was just playing with a group of people yesterday on a softball field, playing the softball. Um, and um, I asked my son last night, I said, hey, buddy, you looked really good. You had moments of, of greatness out there today. Did you think I looked old? And he went like this. I said, never mind. I already know the answer. Yeah, I definitely looked old out there. But I, I am feeling that a little bit. We're hitting some of these milestones. You know, when your kids have lost all their teeth and gained all their adult teeth, um, that's a milestone. You get out of diapers and car seats and booster seats, that's a milestone. Uh, I now switch places with my son in the car. He's in the driver's seat and I'm in the passenger seat. Milestone. And we were in, went out to Tawanda, Pennsylvania, to get his learner's permit. And... Um, so he, get, he did fine, and uh, he drove home, and as we were driving home, well, he was driving home. It gives him a whole hour to drive home, and he can put it on his little record. Um, he got, when, when he got his permit, they gave him this booklet, this driver's manual, basically. Like, here's how to drive. And um, so I'm walking him through it, realizing he's never been over 40 miles an hour in a vehicle before in the driver's seat. And so we're 55, 60 on the way home, I think. And uh, I'm looking through this manual... And I'm like, oh, oh, that's, that's the rule. Huh, I wondered who had the right of way. Um, that's why I got so many reactions from people. Um, anyway, but what happened to me was I began looking at this driver's manual, and it says a bunch of wonderful things that I have long since forgotten. And I have gotten myself into some patterns of driving uh, that are not according to the book. In there, yeah, believe it or not. And there are some things that have changed. Did you, did you know that 10 and 2 is no longer called for? No, it's 9 and 3 and, and whatever, whatever's down here, 8 and 4. Um, oh, my word. And uh, so I, I'm learning all this stuff. And what I've discovered is that I am beginning to bear out the consequences of well-worn patterns in my life in my driving. And so I'm in the passenger seat now with Cole, and I'm saying, hey, now, here's what you're going to do. You're going to look here. You're going to always scan. I'm giving them all these tips, wonderful, true things that I don't do, right? And I think, I think if we're honest, we have probably done the same thing in our lives, maybe with driving, but certainly in, re in relationships, especially as it relates to conflict in relationships. I think that we probably, m many of us who grew up in church, had a background of the Bible. We learned or were taught or were in the room when someone was talking about how to handle relationships and conflict. And we probably got a good start enough to get us going. And I think we may have just walked away from the manual and begun to do things our own way. Now, the consequences may or may not be catastrophic when it comes to driving because you're here today. You probably have done okay. Or God has been merciful, all right? But in the context of relationships, the consequences can be catastrophic, tragic, and will bear the marks and scars of those for a long, long time. So today we're going back to the manual. Now it's selling the Word of God short simply to refer to it as a manual. It's certainly that and much, much more, but it does have some things to say to us about conflict, and we want to look at a few of them. 
All right, so I'm going to do a bunch of setup. I want you to know on the front end, I'm going to do a bunch of setup. Three quarters of this message is going to be a setup to the punchline, to the point. And we are going to haul our way through the scriptures. There's a lot of scripture I'm going to throw at you today. And I, here's, here's what I want to tell you. Here's why. God's word is not negligible. There's not negligible amount of information when it comes to relationships in the Bible. He talks about it a lot. And I'm just going to sort of dump that out on you. We're going to sort through it a little bit and then walk away with the fourth rule of engagement. Sound good? Yeah. All right, good. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, that's great. This can be super beneficial to you as well. Anytime we submit ourselves to the word of God, we benefit. But our hope for you is that you fall in love with the God who had these words written for us. And we would love to talk with you more about your relationship with God and your relationship to his word, all right? So we've uh, been talking about relationships, and you cannot honestly talk about relationships without also talking about conflict. If you're going to talk about relationships and not talk about conflict, you're either being incomplete or ignorant, because conflict is just a part of relationships. One of Kristen's and my favorite things to do is pre-marriage counseling. We love to do that. And uh, we, we love to sit across the table from the couple and talk about communication. How do you guys do at communication? Awesome. We're great communicators. Taking notes. Terrible at communication. <laughs> all right. How do you handle conflict? We haven't had one single conflict. We don't fight at all. Headed for trouble. Right? <laughs> you can't talk about relationships without talking about conflict. All right, and so you're not ready to deal with others without first dealing with yourself. And that's what we've been getting at in the first three weeks of this series. We've been talking about you, your part. There's a whole bunch of prep that's got to be done before you engage with someone else about conflict. You've got to remember it's not about winning. You've got to own your part. You've got to be ready to apologize and ask for forgiveness. But eventually, when it comes to conflict, there's going to be some skin in the game on the part of the other person, and you, you are going to have to be the one to bring that up. You're going to have to do it. You're going, to, you're going to have to step off the ledge and into confrontation. Here's what God's Word has to say. This is our main uh, diving board today. It's Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You who live by the Spirit, you who are pursuing God, you who are submitting your life to the Word of God, you should confront someone in a spirit of gentleness. We're not talking about a difference in personality. We're not talking about different life interests. We're talking if someone is caught in a sin, you've got to do something about it. And this is not the first time this is mentioned in the Bible. When God set up the nation of Israel, back in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, he was giving them laws and rules to live by. And here's what he says in the book of Leviticus, one that you and I are probably in all the time. Not. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, here's what it says. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He says, you've got to love your neighbor. You've got to rebuke your neighbor. You don't want to share in their guilt. 
and he's going to actually fill in the context for us in the, in the preceding verses. Verse 15 says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. He says you want to avoid active and passive hate. Active hate would be perverting justice. Passive hate would be showing favoritism. He says, don't show it to the rich or the poor. And you and I can get this wrong both ways. We can favor the rich because it benefits us. We can favor the poor because we just feel better about ourselves that way. It's wrong on both accounts. We're not to show partiality at all. Both are wrong. So next verse, verse 16. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. He's saying, here's some rules to live by. Hey, church, here's some rules to live by. Don't spread slander. We could just pluck this right out of its context in the nation of Israel and drop it into modern-day local church. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Those are the preceding verses. So we get back to verse 17, and here's what it says. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. He's warning us against hate. So then it would follow, the next thing he tells us to do would show us how to not hate. It would show us how to love. And here's the word, rebuke. Don't hate your fellow believer. Rebuke them. To me, those don't naturally flow. Like, don't hate them, hug them. Don't hate them, pray for them. Don't hate them, serve them. No, he says don't hate them, rebuke them. Part of God's plan for you and me loving each other well is rebuking each other, calling each other out. It's a sign of love to rebuke someone. That's not the way most people think about it today, but it's nonetheless true. And this just isn't a one verse in the Bible truth either. Check these out. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Let's go to the next. 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain more favor than one who has a flattering tongue. More on rebuke. Let's go to the next one. Do not rebuke mockers. They will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Now, this verse is, is extra slippery. This helps us understand what kind of person we are or what kind of person we're dealing with. Rebuke a mocker, and they'll hate you. Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. How do you respond when you're called out? Are you a mocker, a fool? Or are you wise? How you respond to others when confronted will show whether you are a mocker or whether you're wise. No one likes being confronted. I, personally, I don't enjoy being confronted, especially when I'm wrong. I feel like I just swallowed a bowling ball. Like, oh, man. But I've had to learn to own it over the years. Let's go one more. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back. Next verse. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. You know why I'm sharing so many verses about this? Because it's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't come naturally to us. Because Kristen and I have sat one-on-one -on -one with people and in small groups with people who will say, 
Absolutely, I am not going to say anything because it's awkward and because, honestly, it's not even my place. I just don't want to do it. I, just, I would rather live with whatever this angst is, this discomfort, this discord, this disunity, than I would actually open up my mouth and say something true, something loving, something life-giving. It's not wrong to confront. It is hard. But if love was always easy, everyone would do it. Following God's commands is at times difficult. Confronting in a loving way is difficult. So we definitely need to look in the mirror when it comes to conflict and see what our part is and own our part. But there are times then we also have to look out the window and give an honest assessment of what we're seeing in somebody else's life. So how do we do this? How do we confront in a way that doesn't result in a fight? How do we confront in a way that, that elevates God's place in the relationship? How do we confront in a way that demonstrates humility? How do we do that? If you like confronting, if you just can't wait to open up your mouth and spout off to someone, let me just say you have other issues you need to deal with okay, and you need to repent of. Um, Proverbs talks about you too. Proverbs 20, verse 3, it is to one's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Let's not be that person. So listen, let me say to you this. Biblical confrontation is a necessity for every follower of Jesus. All right? And biblical confrontation lives at the intersection of loving a person and hating their sin. Loving the person, but hating their sin. It's saying, I love you. I know your sin isn't just hurting others. It's hurting you, your harshness, your abruptness, your rudeness. It's not good. It's not healthy. It's not helping you. It's not helping the people surrounding you. It doesn't honor God. You've got to stop. And if I love you, I'm going to do what I can to help you avoid the pain that you're causing yourself and other people. But how? How do we do that? Let me give you three steps to take in biblical confrontation to do it in a way that would honor God. In fact, I, this is where the Bible just gets so practical, and I love it because uh, Kristen and I, we were counseling a couple that wanted to be married. They were not followers of Jesus, but they loved our church building at the time. We were serving in New York State, and they saw, had seen our church somehow, and they said, we want to get married there. So they came to meet with me and said, uh, will you marry us? And I got to know them a little bit. Yeah, I'll marry you, but you're going to have to commit to at least eight weeks of pre-marriage counseling. And by the way, it's going to be centered in the Bible, in God's word. If you'll do that, I think we can move forward. They said, deal. Now, what they had told me later was they were, oh my word, this ancient book bunch of laws and rules. Okay, it's only eight weeks. We'll just have to sit through it and as long as we can get married there. Well, we began to open up God's word and they told me later they were blown away at how in intensely practical the Bible is. In fact, week four, he became a follower of Jesus. Amen. All right? It was so cool and, and she was not on board yet and I was in a little situation like, oh no. What do I do? Push the pause button. Um, week six, he became, or she became a follower of Jesus. And uh, I got to marry two followers of Jesus. That's how practical the word of God is. And it was just such an amazing, uh, it, was, it was huge for them, but it was, honestly, it was huge for me. 
It was huge for me to watch God's word just do its thing. And that's what I'm praying it does this morning. Here's the first of the three steps we're going to talk about. All right, this is deal with your part of the conflict first. We've been talking about this the last three weeks. I'm really not going to say much more about this. Joel even took you through last week a few of the seven A's uh, of confession, addressing everyone involved, avoiding if, but, and maybe, and admitting specifically, acknowledging the hurt you've caused, accepting the consequences, altering your behavior, and asking for forgiveness. Those are all part of dealing with your part of the conflict first. Let's jump to number two. Overlook what you can when you can. Overlook what you can when you can. Here are some passages that talk about overlooking a sin, overlooking an offense. Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Next, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Next, whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Next, above all else, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. There's even another passage, Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. He says, bear with. Okay, so the New Testament was written, the second part of the Bible was written originally in Greek, and you can actually get to the meaning of what these Greek words are. And so when he writes bear with, if you were to do a word study, what you would come up with is put up with. Just put up with. Put up with one another. And I, I thought that was funny. I was looking for some profound truth, and, and it really is profound. Just put up with, with each other. Not every issue has to be an issue. Okay? So... And then 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers over a multitude of sins. Let me just talk about this one for a second. Kristen and I have had to work through this in our marriage. I will offend her, she'll offend me, and I will not do anything about it. I'm just going to let love cover it. Just letting love cover it. And so, you know, letting love cover it, so I'm serving her. Here you go. You know, and she tells a joke, and, and I, it's, normally I would laugh, it's pretty funny, and I'm... <laughs> You know, or, you know, she's like, hey, and I go, hey. You know, just like all these passive-aggressive sort of things. Listen, if love can't cover it for real, then you've got to deal with it, all right? If love can't cover it, you've got to deal with it. But there are people, there are types of people who overlook faults pretty easily. Here, here they are. People who overlook faults most easily are patient people. Patient people overlook faults. Patient people understand the human condition. Actually, patient people remember that they themselves are fallen just like you are. A patient dad doesn't say to his son, why would you do that? Do you know why my son did that stupid thing? For the same reasons that I do stupid things. I am more like him than unlike him. I just do different stupid things. We sin differently. And I have a problem with his sin, but I'm okay with my sin. Now, that, that can't be. Patient people. Some are, let's get to the next one. Godly people. Godly people also overlook faults pretty easily. Godly people are ones who are just like God. Psalm 103, 
Verses 8 through 10, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. This is what God is like. If you are like God, then you are patient. You don't always give people what they deserve. You show them mercy. You're not an accuser. The third type of person who overlooks a a fault or an offense easily are humble people. Humble people. Humble people, like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10, recognize I am who I am, but by the grace of God. If it weren't for God's grace in my life, I would be a wreck. So they have a level of humility. So they don't approach someone in a condescending way from the top down. They come alongside and say, hey, I would love to help you out. I struggle just like you do. Humble people see their own faults and brokenness. They overlook faults because they recognize that the offense isn't about them. It's about that person and their relationship with God ultimately. And I would just say, if you struggle with that one, if you are like a quick to confront sort of person, like ready, fire, aim kind of person, maybe you need to memorize this passage right here. Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. The Bible gets really real at times. I'm so offended when I hear someone talking about me negatively, but why should that surprise me? Don't I do the same thing? So this is interesting because the Bible asks us to do two things. Rebuke on one hand and overlook on the other. Like we just stacked up a pile of passages telling us we got to rebuke. And then we just stacked up another pile saying, overlook, overlook. So how do you know? How would one know whether or not to jump in and rebuke or just let love cover it and overlook it? When is it wrong to overlook? When is it right to confront? Let's talk about that for a second. Let me give you six questions to ask to help you determine when you shouldn't overlook an issue. Here they are. When you shouldn't overlook an issue, do you talk about the situation and how hurt you are or what they've done? Do you find yourself talking about it? Can I just say, I've been in pastoral ministry for 15 years. And one of the most problem-causing actions that I have seen in churches is this. We talk about, we don't talk to. We're happy to talk about the problem, the person, the situation. But we would never talk to the the person about the problem or the situation. We gather an army. For what? Okay, if you find yourself talking about it, you need to go confront. Next question. Has it damaged your relationship with him or with her? If it has, if there's a relational rift, you need to deal with it. And listen, Romans 12, 18 says it might not be possible to live at peace with all people, but you better do your part to make sure that you are ready for God to restore that relationship. Next question. Do you find yourself thinking about it days or weeks later, is this the thing that keeps rolling over in your mind when you wake up in the middle of the night? 
Is this the first thing you think about when you wake up? As you're getting ready in the shower, is this what's rumbling around in there? If it is, you ought to confront. Next question. Have they brought dishonor to God? Are they bringing disrepute to the name of God? If they are, and they're affecting people's perception of God in a negative way, you need to bring it up to them. Next, is it hurting others? Or sometimes we do things and we're causing damage to others we don't even know. We are blind. We have blind spots and we're blind to them. That's why they're called blind spots. We need other people to speak into that and say, do you have any idea the effect you're having in this room? Do you have any idea what that's doing to your kids? Next question, is it hurting them? It is a tragic thing to watch someone self-destruct. How many times has someone walked off the deep end or, or they're in a heap of trouble and you're talking about it to someone and you say or they say, saw that one coming? Really? If so, at what point then was the confrontation going to take place? Like, we're, we're happy to play armchair quarterback, but reluctant to throw the ball in the game. It can't be. It can't be. If you answered yes to any of those questions, you need to confront that person. And here's the third step to take, and this is the fourth rule of engagement. Gently confront. Gently confront. This is right back to our main passage, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted by that sin or another sin or in this situation. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Biblical confrontation lives at the intersection of loving the person and hating their sin. Biblical confrontation is a difficult necessity for every follower of Jesus. We've got to stop talking about, we've got to stop or start talking to. And let me give you a, a method that, that we are working through, that we talk about on staff, we're aware of, to help us confront with humility, with love, and it's called this. O-I-C. To help you remember it, Oh, I see. See what we're doing there? Subtle. O, observation. I, interpretation. C, clarification. Here's how this goes. We witness someone um, in a sin. So Chris and I are at the dinner table, and uh, she can tell I'm a little bothered. Cole tells me a story about what happened, and, and Sadie chimes in. And uh, I'm not listening to the story. I'm just watching the food fly everywhere because they're not following the rules. They're not being um, nice, nicely mannered. And I'm like, hey, put the fork down, pick up the spoon, and eat your food correctly. Right? They were just in the middle of telling me something that they thought I'd be excited about, and there I go. What does Kristen do? Option one, you jerk. They're telling you a story. Just be a dad and listen to it. She could do that. She's capable of that. She'll tell you. Okay? But here's what OIC does. Maybe not in the moment. Maybe in the moment I just get a squeeze under the table. Right? Or just a gentle rest on my hand with her hand. Like, settle down, big boy. All right? Later on after dinner, 
clean up, and she comes to me and says, hey, I, I noticed at the dinner table you were a little, little agitated. In fact, when Cole was telling you about his baseball story and Sadie jumped in with what she was saying, it didn't look like you were listening. In fact, you raised your voice, and here's what you said. Observation. It's not based on hearsay or ideas. It's based on what actually happened. She's just recounting the facts. I observed. Okay? Interpretation. Now, it, it could be you're just under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress and haven't dealt with it, haven't talked about it. Um, it, it could be that, you know, your back's hurting you again, you're in pain, and so you kind of just came out a little angry. Or it could be that you were just being impatient and ungodly. Okay? Interpretation. Offering up some suggestions. What it reveals about the person doing this is, hey, I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm offering up some possible interpretations, clarification. Can you help me understand? Was it any of those? Am I, am I close? Am I accurate at all? And letting me clarify. So again, she could, at the table, call me out, call me a jerk, shame me in front of the kids. Or she could do this and lovingly, humbly, gently restore me in my sin. And at this point, I would say, you're exactly right. And I would say the words that maybe she could have said. I am a jerk. I was so impatient. I, Wow. I got to apologize to God, to the kids whom I offended. And because my other two daughters were around, I got to apologize to them too. I got to apologize to her as well. And then thank you for doing this. Oh, I see. It's a great way to have an awkward very difficult conversation that fulfills the biblical obligations, all right? So here's some tips. I'm going to run right through these 10 tips. Um, this message will be recorded at some, in some way, so you can track these down later or write fast, ask your friend, just tag team. Uh, plan your words. Don't just sort of meander into the conversation. Pray and plan your words. Think carefully about what you're going to say next. Talk in person. Uh, we get keyboard courage with our thumbs, with our fingers, let's not. Talk in person. Maybe they live in Oregon. Okay, then call them on the phone. FaceTime them something. Talk in person. It's the best. Number three, remember there may be some facts you are missing. Okay? Listen, what they did made perfect sense to them at the time. And if it didn't make any sense to you, that probably means you don't have all the information. Now, when you get the information, you may conclude, well, that was still sin, but maybe then you can understand why they were thinking the way they were. Doesn't make it right, just helps you understand. Next, make sure you listen carefully, okay? You are not forming your next statement while they're explaining what happened. You're listening, and then you're gonna make adjustments based on what they said. Why? Because we're gonna be humble, because that's what God is like. Okay, next, choose the time and place carefully. I recognize, and you probably do too, that there are some really comfortable places to have conversations and some really uncomfortable places to have conversations. Sometimes having these conversations in a public setting is actually very helpful and feels less threatening. There's a lot going on, a lot of background noise. You can just kind of work it out right there. Sometimes you just need to go out, get a, get a cup of coffee, and, and, and hash it out. But choose it carefully. Next, be agreeable. Agree with what you can when you can. We're not condoning sin. 
We're not making excuses. But just don't be an ogre. All right? Next, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Say what you need to say thoroughly, and then don't say it again. When, when you say what you said again and again, and they repeat what they're repeating again and again, that's called an argument. Right? And it goes nowhere. So just keep it simple. Next. Dialogue, don't lecture. All right? You are not the teacher. They may be your child. They may be your student. But you, in this case, are another fallen human being helping another falling human being honor God. Next. Remember the goal. Your goal is to please God. Your goal for them is to be restored to a right relationship with God and with other people. And lastly, give them time. You don't change in an instant, and neither will they. We don't live in sitcoms. We're not all the good dad that can have the 15-second conversation and then the world is suddenly restored and the birds sing again. Life is a lot more difficult and complicated than that, and you contribute to that difficulty and complication, and so do I. Give them time. So it's not about winning. We're going to own our part. We're going to apologize. And lastly, you're going to gently confront. Gently confront. I think if we're honest, there are probably more than a few areas of our lives where we have wandered away from the manual and sort of done things our own way for a very long period of time, becoming very comfortable in doing that. And we don't bring God into the, into the uh, equation and so we respond in ways that feel natural and comfortable to us, like I do with driving, forgetting that, oh, there are right and wrong ways. There are standards here. There are laws. And today has brought us back to God's word on confrontation. It's not a question of how clear God's word is. It's a question of whether or not you and I will submit to it. That's the issue. God's ways are often difficult, but they're life-giving and they cause us to flourish. Our ways are often easy, but they bring tragedy, pain, and death. So your heart is revealed both in how you confront and how you receive confrontation. And I wonder what God is revealing about you today. Whatever it is, it's an opportunity for you to acknowledge it before God to make it right before him, and then to walk out of here and make it right with the people that you need to talk to. Whatever it is, we need help to do it. So would you pray with me as we ask for God's help? God, um, it is easy and comfortable for me to just do my own thing, to do what feels right or seems right at the time. It's very easy for me to just trudge my way through it, but you, you don't ask us to do that. What you ask us to do is to submit to your word, and you promise as we do that you will bless us for obeying. James tells us that we are blessed not only if we hear the word of God, but we're blessed if we do it. Would you give us the confidence to trust you? Would you give us the courage to obey you? And as we do in the area of confrontation, would you show up? in big ways in our lives and in our relationships. We're looking to you. We ask this for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.